Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. Today, in honor of Father's Day in the United States, we'll talk about the word father and some of its more interesting meanings. And then, in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Watergate scandal, we'll talk about the gate suffix and its interesting uses. But first, I have an interesting tidbit and a couple of corrections from listeners. First, following up on the wisdom teeth piece from a couple of weeks ago, Daniel Sazanowski told me that in Japanese, wisdom teeth are called oyasura noha, forgive my pronunciation if that's really off, um, meaning the teeth parents don't know about. I loved that because they tend to come in after a child has moved out of the house. I found that just delightful. What a great name for them. Thank you, Daniel. Next, in response to last week's piece about demonyms, Kitty Mayhem on Twitter is Australian and asked me to point out that although I said the nickname for Australians can be Aussie or Aussie, Australians themselves only use the Aussie pronunciation. The British use Aussie too. It turns out that Aussie is a particularly American pronunciation. And finally, eclectically, S on Twitter very kindly pointed out that I had pronounced the name for people from Key West wrong. It's spelled C-O-N-C-H, which I pronounced as conch, but it's actually pronounced conch. So people from Key West can be called conchs, and the shell is pronounced the same way. Um, Both pronunciations are actually listed in the dictionary, but eclectic Lee S said when he visited, the locals told him it was pronounced conch. Finally, since I'm doing housekeeping here, I also want to let you know that I've completely revamped my email newsletter, and now, instead of just providing links to what we've published in the past week, I'm writing summaries of interesting language articles and highlighting some of my favorite posts. It's much more meaty than in the past, so check it out the next time it hits your inbox or subscribe by clicking the link in the show notes. And now, on to the show. On Father's Day, we take time to reflect on what our fathers mean to us. But taking a little bit of a linguistic detour, it's also a great day to think about how the word father evolved far beyond just meaning a male parent to become a word we use to refer to people as varied as priests and inventors, despite the fact that none of these involve kids. Although we might think of our fathers as pretty old-timers, they've got nothing in terms of age on the word father itself. The word appeared as Vader in Old English texts and evolved from English's own distant parent, a language known as Proto-Germanic that dates back to about 2500 BC. Although we obviously don't have YouTube videos from this far back to provide evidence, we do know that all languages that descended from Proto-Germanic share a very similar word for father, think Vater in German, which suggests it came from this common source. Since the word's origin is hypothesized to come from baby talk, the pa or da that babies babble, it's likely this meaning of male parent is the original and oldest meaning for the word. But besides carrying this original meaning of intimate kinship, we also find a lot of early Old English biblical references using the word father referring to God in the sense of a spiritual father, in other words, as being responsible for humankind. So this tells us that this extended meaning of the word coexisted with the sense of physical father throughout at least the history of English. 
And considering the prevalence of other languages in which deities are referred to as mothers or fathers, this sense of spiritual father that developed metaphorically from that of being a parent also has been around for a long time. Now, although it's quite common in modern times to hear priests being referred to as fathers, this is actually a surprisingly recent use of the word. According to religious scholarship, in the early days of Christianity, around the 4th century, only the Bishop of Rome was referred to with the title Father, although at the time he was called Papa instead of Father, since that was a child's word for Father in Latin and Greek. It's from Papa, used in this way, that we get the modern English words Pope and Papal. The extension of the word Father to refer to all priests didn't start until quite a bit later. In the Middle Ages, monastic priests in Europe started the trend, as the word abbot, or the head of a monastery, is derived from the Semitic word Abba, meaning father. And since these abbots were priests, they began to be referred to as fathers. By the 18th century, all monastic priests in Europe were called father, and in the 19th century, the Archbishop of Westminster ordered the title be adopted for all priests, monastic or not. While this meaning of the word is related to its sense of being a spiritual father, as we just discussed, it still involves a shift in meaning to refer to spiritual stewardship or oversight as opposed to the progenitor sense involved when it was used to refer to fathers as either physical or spiritual creators of life. But moving even further away from the sense of a kinship relationship, there's the more modern use of the word father to refer to someone who's the founder or originator of something. For instance, calling Noam Chomsky the father of modern syntax or Alan Turing the father of modern computing. The figurative use of the word father in this way to refer to a person deemed responsible for something doesn't appear until about the 1500s when Socrates was mentioned as the father of philosophy. But by the 1700s, this use becomes more pervasive, where we can find it in places as different as writer John Dryden calling Chaucer the father of modern poetry, to a newspaper calling someone the father of the canal. This use of the word has shifted its meaning even a bit more from its original sense, with no human offspring involved at all. Instead, the offspring is now an entity or an idea. Today, people still use the word father in all these senses, and although their meanings are different, all of them still seem to be rooted in the most primordial of our relationships, that of a father to a child. Clearly, the link in all these varied meanings is the idea of nurturing and creation. So the leap from creating or caring for a baby to creating or overseeing a flock to creating an art form or an innovation isn't hard to make. When we see meaning shift from an original sense to a more general sense like this, linguists call it semantic broadening. This has happened over and over again in the course of English. For example, the word thing was originally used to refer mainly to legal or judicial matters, but now it's used much more generally to refer to, well, all sorts of things. And the word bird has shifted from referring to only a young bird in Old English to all birds more generally in modern English. This process of words taking on expanded meanings as time marches on is part of the creative process of language and a testament to our predisposition to embrace metaphors. Of course, for both thing and bird, the new meaning pretty much subsumed its old meaning so that legal things and young birds are included but no longer primary in the shifted sense. 
Father, on the other hand, still means dad, first and foremost. And this type of stability in meaning is no small thing over a few thousand years. That segment was written by Valerie Fridland, who's a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada in Reno and the author of a forthcoming language book, like Literally Dude, all about the speech habits we love to hate. You can find her at ValerieFridland.com or on Twitter as FridlandValerie. Fifty years ago this week, June 17, 1972, five men were arrested breaking into the Watergate complex in D.C.'s Foggy Bottom neighborhood in an attempt to photograph documents and bug the office of the Democratic National Committee headquarters, which was housed in one of the office buildings. Over the next two years, the scandal grew as it became apparent that the break-in had deep ties to the Republican Committee to re-elect the president, officially abbreviated CRP, but eventually known by the derisive acronym CREEP, and as it became apparent that the cover-up went all the way to President Richard Nixon himself. A little more than two years later, Nixon resigned, and by that time, the reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein had become famous for their investigative journalism and coverage of the story for the Washington Post. But the name Watergate had also become famous, so famous that the gate suffix broke off and is now combined with other words for scandals big and small. Let's start with the name Watergate. It's actually not clear where the complex got its name. There are multiple stories, including that there was a Watergate Inn restaurant on the edge of the site before the big complex was built, that Watergate was named after a nearby gate, also known as a lock, that regulates the flow of water on the Potomac River, and that it's named after the steps of the nearby Lincoln Memorial, actually called the Watergate Steps, that go down to the river and were originally intended to be an entry to the city for people arriving by boat, a water-based city gate, so to speak. But regardless of how Watergate got its name, by 1973, just a little over a year after the break-in, gate was already being combined with other words to name scandals. The first use seems like it was meant to be a joke, appearing in the magazine National Lampoon and referring to a Russian scandal as Volga-gate, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. And then, just a month later, a more serious example appeared in a Newsweek article that referred to a scheme to pass off cheap wine as Bordeaux as Winegate. And from there, it was off to the races. In just the 1970s, the Oxford English Dictionary lists examples including Dallasgate, Koreagate, Hollywoodgate, Motorgate, Billygate, Cartergate, Cattlegate, Oilgate, and so on. As you can tell, these gate words rely on the public knowing what's happening. Today, few if any of these scandal names call to mind their particular details, but I'm sure at the time they were meaningful to the audience. But this lack of specificity means that names sometimes get reused for different scandals. For example, there are multiple Sharpie gates. Part of the reason gate spread so widely is that sound-wise, it's easy to combine with other sounds, but not always. Take Iran Gate, for example. That term was occasionally used for what's now more widely known as the Iran-Contra affair. But Iran Gate doesn't just roll off the tongue as well as some other combos, so it didn't seem to stick. 
It's possible the gate suffix also got a boost from New York Times political columnist William Sapphire, who was also widely known for his weekly on-language columns for the New York Times magazine, but who had also been a speechwriter for President Nixon. Noam Cohen, writing for the New York Magazine in 1996, cataloged 20 gate words that Sapphire had coined for later scandals, including peanut gate, Angola gate, landscape, debate gate, nanny gate, trooper gate, whitewater gate, and supposedly Sapphire's personal favorite, double billings gate. Cohen speculated that one of Sapphire's goals was to rehabilitate Nixon's reputation by, quote, relentlessly tarring his successors with the same rhetorical brush, unquote. And Sapphire later apparently admitted as much to Eric Alterman, who said in his book, Sound and Fury, The Making of the Punditocracy, that Sapphire told him that, quote, psychologically, he may have been seeking to minimize the relative importance of the crimes committed by his former boss with his silliness about gate words. But regardless of his motives, the gate suffix had a powerful and enduring champion in Sapphire. And as an aside, I think of things like gate as suffixes, but linguists often call them libfixes, a word coined by Arnold Zwicky in 2010 to describe parts of words that are liberated and then used to form new words. Other examples are flation from inflation, which has given us the words stagflation and gradeflation, kini from bikini, which has given us the words tankini and burkini, and Mageddon from Armageddon, which has been summoned for such disasters as Carmageddon and Snowmageddon. The difference between a suffix and a libfix is that libfixes tend to have a more specific meaning. A gate can be silly or monumental, but it pretty much always refers to a scandal. Whereas a suffix like dom, D-O-M, can be added to words to create the sense of a place or a state, as in the words kingdom and freedom. So basically, a libfix has a more constrained meaning, like a scandal for gate or something you wear to swim for kini. And a suffix can have a much broader set of meanings. But I do also find myself wondering if older suffixes just have broader meanings simply because they're older and have had more time to acquire meanings. It also seems to me that a libfix often takes its meaning from its origin word in a way that suffixes don't. For example, gate had no meaning relating to scandal before Watergate, and kini had no meaning related to swimwear before bikini, which was the name of a group of islands in the Pacific before it was borrowed for swimwear. Another fascinating thing about the gate suffix is that even though Watergate was an American scandal, gate has spread throughout the world. The British seem to love the gate suffix, coming up with many of their own gatey scandals. The partying during COVID lockdown scandal has been called Partygate, and more distantly, one BBC article listed Horsegate for a horsemeat scandal, Woollygate for a scandal in the wonderful Wallace and Gromit animated film A Close Shave, in which Gromit is mistakenly sentenced to prison for sheep racketeering, and Bingate, which referred to a contestant in the Great British Bake Off being disqualified after throwing a ruined baked Alaska in the trash bin. And gate meaning scandal isn't limited to the English language, either. Amazingly to me, it's used in other languages, too. For example, in the journal American Speech, in an article by Brian Joseph, I found examples from German where a political scandal in a state bounded by the Baltic Sea and North Sea was called Waterkant Gate, from Waterkant meaning seaside. 
and from Greek, where a scandal involving the director of the national telephone system, Mr. Tobris, was referred to as Tobrigate. Another American speech article by Miklos Contra describes multiple Hungarian gate scandals, including a scandal involving the post office in a town on the river Raba that was called Rabagate, and a scandal involving the release of high school examination questions called Maturagate, Matura being a word for exam in Hungarian. Finally, Mandarin Chinese also has a version of the gate ending for scandals that uses the Chinese word or symbol men, which means door or gate. Watergate was translated literally by combining the Chinese for water and gate, shaman. And then, just as in English, the gate part, men, later became attached to other words to make the names of scandals. Although one person told me that these words are more likely to refer to foreign scandals than local scandals in China. So the next time you think of Watergate, think not only about how the scandal brought great cynicism to American politics, but also about how the name produced an unlikely English-language success story, with the gate suffix working its way around the world with a new and useful meaning for scandals as serious as Watergate and as frivolous as Bin Gate. Some people may call it a lazy cliché, but after all these years, it's definitely here to stay. Finally, I have a familect story from Jasmine. Hi, Grammar Girl. My name is Jasmine, and I had a familect story I wanted to share with you. Um, in my family, our familect is pretty complicated or unique because uh, my father grew up speaking Yiddish with his parents and grandparents, and so some of the words have made its way into our familect, but not necessarily always keeping their original meaning. And so it's only when I got older and started, uh, you know, really researching my heritage more and hearing more of the Yiddish language that I realized this. So one example of that is punam. Punam. Punam means face, but that's not how we used it in my family. In my family, punam meant grumpy, but in kind of a cutesy way, like you would say to a little kid, like, oh, look who woke up from their nap. They're being a punam. Or why do you have to be a punam today? Well, I found out later on that I guess when I was little, I had a face. I would make a real grumpy face and they'd go, there it is. There's the punam. And apparently it just evolved over time. And so that means grumpy in my family. So we're using really Yiddish words, but it's kind of interesting how families just have them take on their own meaning. Uh, so that's one of my family stories. And I love to hear all of your, yours. So thank you. Uh, yeah, look forward to hearing more. Thank you, Jasmine. I love that story. It's so cute. And you're right. It does highlight how family-like words change and drift, just like other words. It's such a common thing, just like the word father in our first segment. If you want to call with a story of your family act, a word your family and only your family uses, you can leave a voicemail at 833214-GIRL, and I might play it on the show. Grammar Girl is a quick and dirty tips podcast. Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sims, and my editor, Adam Cecil. Our ad operations specialist is Morgan Christensen, and our digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchings. Our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin, whose favorite candy is black licorice and will happily take all your black jelly beans. And our intern is Brendan Pika. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>